Goddag og velkommen til Langsom Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Vi må sige, at det er på sin plads, at vi her kommer med en tilståelse og en indrømmelse. Vi har på information skrevet utroligt meget om klimaet, om hvor galt det kan gå, og alt det, vi skal gøre, for det ikke går så galt igen. Det er en kamp, vi har været stærkt optaget af, dækket minutiøst gennem årtier. Det er store strukturelle forandringer, det er en grøn omstilling, det er forandringer i naturen, der ligger uden for vores rækkevidde, som vi måske, måske ikke selv kan kontrollere omfanget af. Men der er noget, vi ikke har talt så meget om, og det er her, tilståelsen kommer. Vi har simpelthen forsømt at tale om, hvordan man selv skal leve med det psykologisk, fordi klimaforandringerne kommer til at finde sted. De kommer til at forandre vores forhold til omverdenen, og de kommer til at forandre vores forhold til os selv. Det handler ikke om, det sker. Det handler om, i hvor stort omfang det sker. Og alt det, der handler om det rent psykologiske. Hvordan skal vi så tale om at leve med de her klimaforandringer? Hvordan skal vi tale med hinanden om det? Skal vi få børn? Skal vi anklage vores forældre for, at de ikke har gjort noget ved det? Hvordan skal vi skabe bæredygtige relationer til andre mennesker, til vores egen livsfortælling, i en verden, der ikke længere er bæredygtig? Der er nogle meget store eksistentielle og sociale forandringer, som vi ikke har været gode nok til at forberede ja, vores lyttere og vores læsere på. Og det vil jeg godt undskylde for. Men nu har vi så virkelig taget fat. Nu har vi lavet en stor serie, som handler om, hvordan vi taler sammen, når vi taler om klima, og hvordan vi skaber bæredygtige relationer, når vi prøver at skabe en bæredygtig verden. Det har vi lavet en stor serie om, som kører i Dagbladet Information, den kører digitalt, og den kører i printavisen, og den kan jeg selvfølgelig anbefale, at man følger. Og hvis man ikke har abonnement på Information, så kan man få det, og man kan da få fem uger gratis og advarer. Det er vanedannende på livstid, men det er fandme også noget, der hæver niveauet for ens tilværelse. Men jeg har i den her uge valgt at tage en samtale i den serie ind i langsomme samtaler, fordi langsomme samtaler har også meget handlet om forandringer i verden, og meget lidt om, hvordan vi selv skulle forholde os til det. Jeg har talt med den norske klimapsykolog Erik Nagrøt, som skriver Ph.D.-afhandling på Universitetet i Oslo, og som forsker i klimapsykologi. Jeg hørte om Erik for nogle uger siden, da jeg var i Trondheim, hvor de fortalte mig om en mand, der havde sagt noget helt vildt, som havde skabt voldsom opstandelse. De fortalte om en, der havde udtalt sig om noget med klimaangst på en måde, så folk var blevet rasende. Jeg forstod, at der var faktisk var tale om deciderede skandaler, og jeg tænkte straks, ham må jeg tale med, jeg skal tale med ham. Det han så havde sagt, gik det op for mig, det var, at klimaangst er et helt forkert ord. Og klimaangst er ikke noget, man skal behandles for i terapi. Klimaangst er en energi, man skal bruge til at gøre noget i verden. Det er ikke noget, man skal lukke ned for. Det er noget, man skal bruge. Det er ikke noget, man skal behandle. Det er noget, man skal handle på. Og det synes jeg faktisk var en fuldstændig vidunderlig pointe. Så jeg har længe tænkt, at vi skal tale med Erik Nakkerøt. Vi skal have ham til at forklare den position, der gjorde folk til rasende. Og vi skal også have ham til at fortælle, hvorfor det er, at man faktisk får det bedre på den måde. At de aktivister, han har talt med, og dem, der har isoleret sig, men nu er kommet ud i samfundet, de siger alle sammen, at de faktisk har fået det bedre at engagere sig i det. Og han siger selv i den samtale, vi har her, at bare det, at vi sidder i to forskellige lande og forholder os til præcis det samme, det gør faktisk, at han bliver meget mere optimistisk samme aften. Jeg håber, kære lytter, at I vil få den samme oplevelse af, at når I hører, hvordan vi sidder to forskellige mennesker i to forskellige lande og taler om præcis de samme eksistentielle problemer, og oplever, hvordan det værste er i isolationen, og det bliver bedre, når man kan mødes om det, at I så også får den samme oplevelse af, at det her kan vi altså godt bruge til at løse alle de andre problemer, vi har i samfundet. God fornøjelse.
Good evening to you, Erik Nakarud, who's with us from Oslo. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for taking your time. And and let me first uh, clarify that we're doing something that is a little bit of Scandinavian embarrassment because we had a long discussion here in the newspaper about whether we should do this conversation in Norwegian Danish as the great Scandinavian brothers that we are, or whether we should do it in English. And uh, the majority of the people involved in the discussion said, we should do it in English because a lot of our Danish Norwegian brothers are not able to understand each other in our in our tongue. So we decided to do it in English, but we could talk in, in Danish Norwegian if we were together. But now through screen, we do it. We 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 do it in 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 English. So please please bear with us, and we hope that there are no English speakers around us. <laughs> hey, I I heard about you Eric, when I was in Trondheim just a, some a few weeks ago. And they, uh, there was announced a panel debate the day after I, I was there, and I heard about a climate psychologist that was very, very interesting. And people were very highly recommending you. And they said, well, we have this psychologist, and he says that you shouldn't just run away from climate anxiety. It's not just a therapeutic matter. It has, you, must, you must use it. You must use it to do something. You must stay in it. And I thought, well, I have to talk to this guy. I, I'm in love with this guy. I never, I never heard something. So that's how I heard of you. So thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you. That's a very, very kind introduction. And uh, after this, uh, um, maybe not that nuanced um, statements that I have had on this topic, I have, of course, received a lot of criticism. So today, maybe I'll present a, a bit more nuanced uh, view on the topic. Yeah. And it is a very difficult topic. And of course, my baseline is, of course, that it's something that we all have to deal with. How do we, you know, how do we talk about something that's actually very unbearable to talk about? And But it's also unbearable not to talk about it. And I think we have all sorts of private conflicts. How do we talk to our children about it? How do we talk to our parents about it? How do I even talk to my friends about it? Because People, I don't want to talk about it now, and people never want to talk about it at the same time. But first, I want to hear, how did you come become involved with climate? Well, it started when I was writing my um, master thesis uh, on the clinical program as a, to become a psychologist, and I wanted to uh, do something unclinical uh, to have uh, a last breath of uh, more activist uh, approach before entering uh, the world of uh, psychotherapy. And then I um, I kind of missed it after having been out in the clinic for, for a year. And then uh, I got the opportunity to take a PhD at the University of Oslo on, uh, on climate psychology, environmental psychology. And then that was the way back to, to approaching uh, more I don't know, uh, societal issues and not just, uh, I guess a lot of psychologists become uh, aware of the limitations of their often individualized approach in the clinic. And, uh, and then I was lucky enough to get a, to get an, I don't know, it's uh, maybe rude to call it an escape, but at least I got the opportunity to do something different. And, uh, and that was uh, something I really wanted to do. And what's your PhD about? Well, that's I guess that's a bit, um, if not ironic, but I at least I I stayed with a somewhat individualized approach for a while because then I wanted to to explore the choice of not having children 
as uh, environmental um, pro environmental behaviors, not having children uh, in order to reduce one's own climate footprint or environmental footprint. Uh, and that's, of course, a very individualized approach to climate change and environmental issues where, where people uh, look at these uh, graphs and, uh, and see which behavior has the most impact. And then they uh, decide to, to go for that. That was, of course, a very simplistic uh, way of, of presenting it. But that's more or less the case where people want to do the behavior with the most impact in individual terms. How widespread is that in Norway to decide not to have children because of climate, because of fear of climate change? Well, it's um, one report from last year. People with and without children were asked about their reasons for not wanting uh, a first children, a second or a third. And for the people without any children, um, as much as 40% said that uh, environmental concern was contributing to their uh, decision. They, they didn't have to weigh the different concerns, uh, economic, uh, housing, and so on. So it's hard to say uh, how how big uh, part of the, the total picture it is, but at least then um, yeah, 40% uh, of those without children say it's relevant for their, their decision. So, so it's definitely something that has entered into the existential deliberations of just normal people it's not like a two percent i'm an activist it's 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 more like a commonplace deliberation yeah it's, it seems like it is and and of course for, for a lot of people it will it will pass and i'm assuming that it's more common common for for young young people and that also uh, illustrates one another aspect of uh, this uh, environmental child free which is the um, political statement aspect where a lot of people use it as a way of uh, almost as a way of striking or uh, yeah. sending a message that uh, well we're not going to have children before the situation is uh, is one where it seems reasonable to raise children in the future and so on so uh, almost like yeah, a birth strike so, so how do you, I know you're just, you're studying here, you're not clinical, but, but if someone came to you uh, as, as, a, as a patient in, in your clinic and, and were, were tormented by this, uh, by, by this reflection, whether they, they should have children or not, I know you wouldn't answer the question for them, but what, how would you approach the question? Um... Well, maybe I shouldn't uh, say this, but I guess I would have, in a very kind way, tried to look for other motivations and uh, what's lying behind this this uh, decision, as as I probably would have uh, with other cases as a psychologist, trying to uh, go go beyond uh, the. the direct expression of something and then trying to see yeah for what's what's beyond uh, the expression in the room so yeah and that's um, at the same time that's uh, that's a sort of uh, skeptic approach that i know a lot of these people uh, are very tired of of being uh, being met with where they uh, 
really want to be believed in their you know, in the magnitude of their distress. Uh, so it's it's difficult. And, and then, but I also have to say that most of these participants themselves said they had other reasons for not wanting to have children. And then the envir environmental concern was more of the, um, we say, spikan isista uh, uh, in Norwegian. So the, the straw that broke the elephant's back. Yes. Yeah. yeah. How, how, how do you, I think, um, I think climate change is, it's a very, very special topic here in Denmark because my experience is that we talk about it in public most of the time. It's something that people talk about. And I think it's something that most people recognize. Some say, well, we're doomed. Nature is stronger than we are. Others say, well, technology will save us in the end. And a lot of people, even, you know, my very leftist friends say, well, I can't stand thinking too much about it. You know, I, but, but so, but it's part of the public debate. Definitely. It, it definitely is. But it's very different in social and private settings. It's a difficult topic to talk about. How do you experience it in your daily life when you come out as a climate psychologist? Do your friends and family want to talk uh, to, uh, about climate with you? Uh, yes, quite often. And also when I've been uh, uh, setting some debates on fire with my, uh, with my, with my disturbing presence, then... Uh, then Especially, they've been eager to to discuss what I've been saying and other perspectives and how I live my life myself and how they live their lives. And that I'm often I I rather watch football or play football with them instead. But uh, but yeah, it's definitely an issue where they want to talk about these things. So I guess in that sense, I've been experiencing experiencing maybe the opposite of what other people experience, where they. It's hard to talk about it because people don't want to. And, but I experience that people really want to talk with me about it, where I maybe sometimes rather not talk about it. <laughs> but, but do people, I mean, we have someone writing about climate change for many, many years here. And someone that I admire enormously because they had the courage to write about it for 30 and 40 years. And it was not very popular when they started out. And there social experiences very often that people tend to feel bad about themselves whenever they show up. You know, people think, they almost feel like, I, I know I went on vacation, but it was with my children and they never saw Spain. Or I know you see me eating meat right here, but yesterday actually we had salad all day. How, how does your uh, presence uh, affect people? Yeah, I, I can really relate to, to the dietary questions where people uh, comment my food uh, I usually eat vegetarian or vegan and then they want to address what I'm eating and tell me that they had something similar yesterday or even as they're now eating meat as you said so I think it's uh, yeah it's really hard to be to be very um, concerned with these uh, topics both Uh, or especially uh, professionally uh, without having to, to face it uh, outside of work uh, in some way. And um, to me, I have to say, usually positive though for me. And uh, it's, uh, of course, it's not fun to induce guilt and shame in other people. But uh, yeah, but I haven't experienced this, uh, this negative uh, 
these negative aspects in the in the close uh, closer realm with friends and family, but of course in social media, then uh, being uh, vocal on these topics is uh, is less pleasant. Yeah, uh, but we're kind of. I mean, I'm not diminishing your experience, but I mean, this is a place where you expect diver- adversity. Yes. That's social media. But as long as your friends and family <laughs> are with you, I mean, I, I've, I've always feel like I can go through anything if they're there the next day. You know, all the other things are not relevant; they will pass. Exactly. So, so let me hear your views on, on climate anxiety. Uh, how how do you how do you think we should? At first, I mean. We have the same word in Danish and Norwegian, actually, klima angst. And I always thought it was a very weird concept because for me, angst means that it has no object, that it's against your own existence. And it's part of a tradition that says, well, nature doesn't really matter. What matters is the human, that that the human is spirit and we're above nature. So if you have fear, fear for something objective, then you have to find out the deeper source and it's always angst. So for me, klima angst is kind of an oxymoron because angst is about yourself and climate is about, is about uh, the surrounding world. So, so how, how, how do you see this concept? I, I see it as very problematic, as you say, because it's, it's very human-centered. Uh, and and also when trying to deconstruct the, the, this, uh, what's called, this, this concept and, and filling it with something else, like, well, this is not uh, anxiety and it's, it's not angst in, in clinical sense. It is, uh, it is an, an ease that should be used for action or something. Then deconstructing the concept and then reconstructing it in a more social participatory way, then then you're still using the the freaking concept of angst, which is which is pointing to a very yeah human centered and individualized uh, approach. So so I find it uh, difficult to use it. And I and in the literature on on climate anxiety, I think there's a almost um, a feeling of just giving in to society's way of using this word. So. Um, discussing how it's problematic it shouldn't really be called this because it makes no sense and it actually refers to a lot of uh, different emotions and probably more fear or worry would be more relevant or precise and then also anger frustration sadness distress so many other words that actually would capture uh, the phenomenon better or not each one of them but um, maybe using a variety of concepts instead of this overarching klima angst. So, but then they they kind of conclude with that this uh, as a way to to uh, assemble all these different concepts and phenomena, feelings into one uh, one concept that we can easily talk about. Then, in that sense, climate uh, anxiety or klima angst is is useful. So it's it's become the word, uh, I guess, uh, with its problematic uh, sides. Yeah, I think your, I mean, your reservations about the word and the way that I heard your point, point referred. I'm I'm I absolutely one hundred percent agree with you because I think that it is a very weird thing that you that you treat something 
semantically as if it was a therapeutic ma matter. Uh, uh, you know, and, and you know, I think to a certain extent, there's something very interesting about Greta Thunberg, that is some, someone with a psychological deficiency who's now being the grand teacher of, uh, of, of the world. How, how do you see that? Yeah, I think it's very, it's an interesting case in, in uh, many ways, because I think her, yeah, the, her openness around her, uh, say, uh, what, what do you call it, a mental deficiency? Or, yes. Yes. Um, has well um, obvious uh, positive sides to it, but also it has uh, created an opportunity for for those who would like to label any attempt at social change as something pathological uh, or hysteric or yeah, this is just crazy crazy people that is concerned with these issues. So if if we had if we if you have teenagers who who come to you and say they suffer from what they call climate anxiety and like you said we're not the masters of the language we can distribute the words who like but but we must take part in society and using the language how, how would you confront that if 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 you have because if you have people 16 17 or 18 come to you and say well I suffer from climate anxiety well if I met them as a clinical psychologist I would start to ask them about their or not directly ask but try to assess the the symptoms symptoms and ask about the symptoms what kind of uh, how how much does it impair their daily life and their functioning and and those sort of approaches that is used yeah uh, the first approach in many cases when people meet the psychologist is to assess the uh, the magnitude of of the of the problems and how it affects functioning and then I think in many cases, um, you wouldn't see the symptoms that is usually associated with anxiety. Um, sometimes, and that's um, based on the literature as well, sometimes it is related to anxiety disorders, that part of the, the concept, but usually it's more of a, as existential dimensions or these more colloquial dimensions where we... Uh, can talk about uh, well i teach at the university college so test anxiety exam anxiety are useful use uh, used in, in similar ways i think as as sometimes climate anxiety is used how do you see i mean uh, the problem for me is that i do you know i do think there are objective reasons for feeling very bad about climate and it's something that i think instead of staring at it right here, you should put it, so it's it's present, but it's not blocking your your, your horizons. Have you seen, uh, you must have seen some successful strategies of coping with it, even people becoming activists or dealing with it or, or, or starting to take an interest in nature. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's been uh, very fun actually to, to talk about uh, these ways of, of coping that is, uh, becoming active in organizations in politics or in yeah in other ways trying to participate for social change and when i talked about that so many youth politicians or members of organizations have have come to me afterwards and saying yes that's exactly how it is like i haven't uh, felt as 
as good <laughs> about uh, these uh, issues since since when I become a became a member uh, of this and this party or this and this organization because now I'm actually being taking part in uh, in a community and I'm trying to do something and not just as you said staring right at here but trying to to get it out of not blocking the view. Yeah, I, I was in a, a, a a debate a couple of weeks ago with the, amongst other Bill McKibben, the American uh, climate yes. act, cl climate activist, and before the debate, we were talking about how the, the climate situation and it's collapsing all around us. And then we were part of the debate afterwards, and I I admire him a lot. I mean, he's been in the game for forty years, and he's been just I mean, he's suffered so many setbacks. I can't believe you know that he's still in the game, but. I noticed there was a difference between him talking about it just before and then being part of a debate. And he was a lot more optimistic when he was in the when he was in the debate. And first, I think, well, he's afraid to tell people the truth about how he really feels. And then I realized it's not that. It's just because being part of a debate is like being part of the activism. That there is an energy in that which which uh, which you know. Which makes it almost impossible to to resignate and and uh, and and do you understand what I'm saying? So he was because he was he was part of it. And then he said something I thought was absolutely wonderful. He said, "One of the many many times I've been jailed, I was sitting with my handcuffs in prison afterwards, and I was thinking, well, it's better to sit here than to sit in front of a television doing nothing." <laughs> do, do you meet these kind of uh, of reactions from people? Yeah, definitely, and uh, and I can. Well, yeah, and I can relate to it uh, myself that after our conversation uh, this evening, I will feel a lot more optimistic about these <laughs> concerns uh, because now, well, it's not. Yeah, it's it's even across countries, and we're we're uh, really trying to make sense of these things, and and. Yeah, and uh, I was uh, trying to connect this. Yes, and what we talked about earlier, how maybe the the grand uh, mechanisms and structures uh, that we have will will actually start to deal with uh, with the climate and environmental concerns, and then we'll have huge uh, social issues that uh, that become maybe the the, the priority and. And then having established these ways of talking together and negotiating and, and having an awareness of the importance of engaging in society instead of um, isolating yourself and maybe becoming, I don't know, uh, if not radicalized, then at least isolating oneself from society. Uh, if it's left side or right side or green or gray. So I think... This optimism, that's what I'm trying to say, is, is not just isolated to the climate and environmental topics. It's also related to, to all the issues that will, come, that will come after these issues. Yeah, I, I definitely. And I think there's always, you know, sometimes I think it's people who are privileged like you and me are, not just geographically, but also culturally. 
and socially from where we are in the world that we don't suffer a lot from 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 the transition so i think well well we can gain a lot from this and there then there are people my con my family is several generation of farmers back and they they don't see a lot of opportunity but something that i do see personally and also in my children's life is that there's so much attention and there's they have to relate to so many things at the same time and i feel that they're in a low intensity war all the time and they're happy kids you know so and i think that this if something good could come out of this climate crisis it's the kind of we must make peace with each other in order to make peace uh, with with nature and i think that is hopeful for me yes definitely i agree because uh because there will be huge issues, uh, especially related to migration uh, in, the, in the coming decades. So I think having this, uh, this awareness and this attitude is, is key, really. And, and then another question is, is uh, how do you recommend that we as parents talk to our teenagers? Because that's a very different relation, because I think there's, this is really a dilemma for me. On the one hand, as a parent, you feel that it's your moral duty to say when they think something is very dangerous, you feel a moral duty to say, no, you shouldn't be afraid. You know, there's small children in the big world and you overlook the world, say there's nothing to be afraid of. So parents should be reassuring. On the other hand, parents should take responsibility for the world that they're leaving their, their kids. So if, if we're reassuring parents, say there's nothing to be afraid of, then we're really letting them down. Then we're saying, well, well, your, your anxiety doesn't have a place in the world. But on the other hand, if we say that, if we say, well, your immediate way of expressing it is absolutely correct. I confirm your way of dealing with the world. Then we're also taking away our responsibility. How do you think we should deal with this dilemma? And I know well, this is a very difficult yeah. question. Yes, and when faced with a difficult question, you just throw it back, right? So, <laughs> since I don't have kids and you have, so how do you, how do you cope with this with your kids? Oh, I, I think I think it changes a lot from situation to situation, actually, and and I think you you know you have to. I I always tell them that all the progress that they experience, that that they are part of a long journey of moral progress and that brought them to where they are so my daughter who's 19 she can do as much as she wants to she doesn't have to feel ashamed to be out at four at night or yell at her father and she has because of my mother and my grandmother so she has she's been given freedom because other people suffered for her and i tell my son that he doesn't have to go to war he doesn't have to work in the coal mines because other people fought for that and suffered for that so they've been brought in a position in history where they have some expectations about freedom and justice and safety that was unthinkable just for my my mother and my father. So they've been brought there. And so they have the resources for this great transition that they're going through. On the other hand, I also try to show them with everything I do that I know I spent my part of, you know, I would never, if they take the, if they take a flight on vacation, I would never moralize about it because I've done that so many times. But I would never do it myself. You know, I want them to see me, not using nature and leaving something for them. So I try to show them that I know I owe you, and if I don't do that, they will for sure, they will for sure find it. So so it's it's a it's a, it's a very different, complex interaction where you have to say. 
I recognize that this is horrible for you. I've never been in your position. But also on a positive note, I've never been in your position because I've never been part of a global community where you can gather around Greater Thunberg. So I think that's how I try to, to, to see it. Yeah, and I think that sounds very, uh, very reasonable and uh, I think uh, a really nice way of approaching it. But then another question uh, is, is, how do you talk to your parents about it? Because well, my, my, it's a difficult for me because my parents, my mother is dead, but they, it's part of their understanding of themselves and the narratives of their lives that they wanted to leave a better place for their children. And it's unbearable for them that they're not in a certain way. And I don't want to, you know, it's like they're on the final lap and I don't want to say, hey, guys, you fucked up. But but I, I also don't want them to ignore it. Yeah, I, luckily or unluckily, I have um, both my parents have been very um, concerned and working with these issues all their life. So and my mom is actually doing a PhD herself on <laughs> on these <laughs> topics from uh, from sociology. Uh, but still, um, and my father is working with these issues. Uh, also like, gathering examples from all over Scandinavia and how communities deal with environmental issues at the, at the local level and having this, um, uh, again, was that a, Agenda 21? Was that uh, in Denmark as well? No. Uh, not but, to my knowledge. No. So, but uh, this uh, was very big in the, in the 80s and 90s, trying to see the, uh, having a global perspective on the, on the local development and, uh, and their, They've been part of that uh, ever since. So, so to the extent that I blame them for anything, it's that they have been so concerned with the with the systems and with the structures that they have uh, overlooked how individual behaviors also are part of of the conundrum uh, in a way. And now I myself have I have turned away from being very very engaged with the individual behaviors and trying to be more uh, be, use my energy on, on the structural level but still uh, I guess I have blamed them a little bit for being too I don't know too leftist in their approach where everything is, is about systems and, and society and then uh, leaving the individual responsibility behind them yeah, as you said, flying all over the world and doing all these things uh, while working for societal change. And I, I think I have, uh, yeah, given them a little bit of, uh, of uh, yeah, I don't know if I give them guilt or shame, but I, I've tried to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love your, your parents. I think if they were Danish, they would definitely be subscribers of, uh, of information. So I just, <laughs> yes, I, definitely. I just have, I just have, um, I just have one last last uh, question for you, uh, because we, we're running out of, uh, we're we're running out of time, and and that is, is is there any piece of advice that you would give to to people about how to deal for themselves existentially, how to to tell themselves, you know, how to, you know, for me personally, I think it's very very hard to at once insist on I want to live in truth, uh, I don't want to lie and I don't want to repress and then uh, still I want to spread joy around me you know so there uh, and, and so I think there's so many dilemmas here do you have any like uh, 
proposals or suggestions or advice for people? Yeah, I, I uh, just before our conversation, I read an article, a great article that I'll send to you later, summarizing a lot of the, the stuff on the echo feelings. And I think those are very reasonable advice. We're trying to channel this um, frustration and, and distress into participation but and social action getting engaged in some way but also the part that I maybe have been missing when I've been uh, less nuanced is to do some emotional work so that you're not just um, acting out your frustration and but also doing the the emotional work uh, where you sit down uh, reflect talk to your friends and family about where we're heading how this is going and and actually touching the existential parts uh, of this issue as well but then going out there and engaging. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, Erik. Thank you so much. You have a good evening in Oslo. Thank you. You too. Det var så min samtale med Erik Nakkerud. I næste uge, der skal jeg tale med den franske politiske forsker Hélène Landemort, som faktisk har været en forfatter, jeg har fulgt i en 10-15 år, som længe har forsket i en anden måde at være sammen på, nemlig hvordan mennesker bliver klogere, når de mødes mange mennesker for at forholde sig til fælles anlægner. Grundsynspunktet i hendes forskning, det er, at en hvilken som helst større gruppe af mennesker vil, når de i fællesskab forholder sig til samfundets store problemer, være klogere end ganske få eksperter, der har forsket i det i hele deres liv. Det er jo meget opløftende i sig selv. Men det er kun en præmis. Vi kommer langt, langt videre. For derfra siger hun så, hvordan man skal indrette et helt nyt samfund. Hun kalder det for åbent demokrati. Jeg kalder det for åbne samtaler. Jeg håber, I er med igen i næste uge.